Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. We have a dynamite panel for our first roundup of 2022. Returning to the roundup is Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, good morning. Thank you for making the time again. Welcome back. It's really great to be with you guys. I love this group, and this is obviously a substantive conversation, so I'm looking forward to it. Indeed. Also returning to the roundup is the fantastic, fabulous Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's great to see you again. Welcome back. It's good to be with both of you two. On this week's roundup, we're going to do something different and make some space to reflect on the attack on the Capitol last January, how the DOJ and select committee investigations have progressed this year, and what it could mean for democracy moving forward. We'll also talk about the great resignation and the state of the economy. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we'll talk about Twitter's decision to permanently ban Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and the broader trend of platforming and deplatforming. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and join the community. Let's dig in. The three of us recorded last year together last year to the day after the insurrection at the Capitol, the three of us and Theron Johnson. And now that it's been a year since the attack, and there's been a lot of movement in both the Department of Justice investigations and the prosecutions and the House Select Committee that's investigating the siege, over 700 people have been charged with alleged crimes stemming from the riot. And I just want to summarize what has happened since then uh, before we dig into this discussion. More than 600 have been accused of entering or remaining in the restricted capital grounds, the most common crime alleged. That carries a maximum sentence of one year in prison and a $100,000 fine at the misdemeanor level. Over 30 defendants have been charged with theft of government property, including the alleged theft of a laptop from Speaker Pelosi's office. At least 225 defendants have been charged with assaulting, impeding, or resisting law enforcement during the attack including 75 who are accused of using a deadly or dangerous weapon against officers. Approximately 140 members of law enforcement were assaulted last January 6th. More than 40 people have been charged as part of a broader conspiracy that alleges defendants coordinated in their attack. So far, nobody has been charged with sedition also known as attempting to overthrow the government. But back in March, then acting U.S. Attorney Michael Sherwin didn't rule out sedition charges if the evidence supports the charge. So far, there have been over 160 guilty pleas, with 85% of those being admission to nonviolent misdemeanor crimes. But at least seven have pleaded guilty to felony crimes and five have pleaded guilty to the broader conspiracy charge. At least 70 defendants have been sentenced, including a Florida man who admitted to attacking officers with a wooden plank and a fire extinguisher, who was sentenced to 63 months in prison, and that's the harshest sentence so far. But none of the more than 530 remaining defendants have stood trial, although a handful of those trials are currently scheduled to begin in April. At least 81 current or former service members face charges, 36 who've been in the Marines, 28 in the Army, three in the Navy, and five in the Air Force. At least 16 of those arrested 
were either former police officers or were law enforcement officers at the time of the riot. Of the eight police officers who were employed at the time of the attack, all have since lost or left their jobs. The DOJ is still searching for more than 350 suspects, including 250 who allegedly assaulted police officers. The FBI is also still investigating the planting of pipe bombs outside the Republican and Democratic National Committee headquarters the night before the attack. The House Committee has ramped up its investigation. They've recently spoken with Stop the Steal organizer Ali Alexander, former Pentagon Chief of Staff Cash Patel, John Eastman, who authored the notorious memo with a strategy to overturn the election, and Chris Krebs, the Trump administration's most senior cybersecurity official who was fired after disproving Trump's false claim that the election was stolen. The committee is seeking testimony from Fox News personality Sean Hannity after reviewing text messages he sent to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. On this past Tuesday, Chairman Benny Thompson said he wants to hear directly from former Vice President Mike Pence but said he wants Pence to speak to the panel voluntarily. And last weekend, Liz Cheney told ABC News that Trump's failure to call off the mob was a, quote, dereliction of duty. And Cheney has repeatedly suggested the committee is examining whether Trump may have refrained from talking down the mob in a deliberate effort to obstruct the counting of electoral votes. Cheney noted that the committee has firsthand testimony that Ivanka Trump asked her father to stop the violence at least twice and that he refused her both times. That is a non-exhaustive summary of some of the inflection points around this event from the last year. And there's obviously a lot in there. A ton has happened during these investigations, and there's obviously a lot more to go. There are these ongoing prosecutions, and the committee wants to talk to numerous high-profile figures in the Trump orbit, Pence, Hannity, uh, Congressman Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows, Steve Bannon. And I wanted this discussion today to be a little bit less pointed and timely, although feel free to bring up whatever's on your mind. I wanted to create some space for reflection because the three of us were literally processing out loud in real time as this event happened last year. We really didn't have time to prepare. And so I just, I guess we could start with your reactions to the progress that both of these investigations have made so far and looking back how how do you how do you feel the you know the public is is reckoning with this event mike do you want to lead off yeah wow i mean there's so much so much to cover and i think that's your point is just the enormity of what happened on that day is something that i still don't think has seeped into the national consciousness um but as we learn more sort of that refrigerator hum that we've been talking about. And I, I do want to talk about tactically mm-hmm. what the committee has been doing and what Liz Cheney specifically has been doing as a tactic, because I think it's it's a masterclass in 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 how to to handle yourself in the situation. But look, I, I think January 6th, I believe the president should declare it a national day of commemoration. I, I think that what happened um, cannot be looked at as a protest that got out of control. What we are learning is at the highest levels of our government, at the highest levels of media and in other institutions, the overwhelming number of uh, military members, former military members engaged in this um, is demonstrating that the partisanization of key institutions is has be, have become vessels of war in uh, a threat to to democracy, to constitutional norms, and to the republic itself. 
Um, and I think that we are still not as a nation grasping how deeply ingrained the sense of so many of our fellow Americans is that this country um, and everything that it has been based on over the past 250 years is of no consequence at this moment. And that a, a battle is not coming. The battle is engaged. Mm. And January 6th was as relevant as, you know, Bunker Hill. It, it was as relevant as, as Fort Sumter. It, 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 this was the beginning not the end. And I think that if you listen back to the conversations that the three of us were having a year ago, there was this awareness that this was the beginning. It, it was not a one-time event. It was not the end of the Trump presidency. It was the beginning of a new era that is going to test America's resolve and our interest in maintaining union. I, I mean, truly, that's what we're seeing is states now taking action uh, against one another in retaliation, Texas moving on abortion, then California moving on guns through private rights of action. All of this are symbolic of a people who really do not have a an appetite to be together anymore. And the question is going to become how how deeply ingrained can institutions be when a people increasingly do not want uh, to be together? And I think that that's going to be the question that's going to define our American political system over the course of the next three or four years. And January 6th was the beginning of that. There's a couple of things I want to dig into uh, in a few minutes, but um, in, including how you're thinking about union, because you've been talking about this a lot lately and, and war between the states or the conflict between the states, between and among the states. Um, but before we do, Lucy, what have your reactions been? Well, I think it's easy to see January 6th as a flashpoint uh, in our in our country and in our in our in the the flow of of our democratic systems and norms. But I think just as we've talked about how a figure like Donald Trump was not the cause of of what what has been wrought, you know, he's he was a symptom of where we are as a country. I think that Likewise, January 6th has proven to be the same kind of symptom. January 6th, of course, we have to investigate and we have to get to the bottom of it. But there's been a lot of emphasis on what happened on that day, which no question is super, super important and not a lot of emphasis on what led to that day and not a lot of emphasis on what has happened since that day. And and something that I think we haven't paid enough attention to is that there are people who participated in January 6th who, far from going back to their home states and being um, demonized or basically shunned from polite society, have used January 6th as a springboard to rise in local politics. There are now you know, 57, by some count I read today in Politico, uh, candidates who've declared their intent to run in 2022, who directly participated in the January 6th insurrection, and they have returned to their communities and been uh, glorified for their roles. And Republicans in general see the events of January 6th, many of them, although in general, most Americans say that January 6th 
was a terrible day and a terrible event. A third of Republicans say that it was patriotism on display, that it was people defending freedom. And so I think that it's a reminder of really how far apart we are. And that's not a very original thing to say, but I think that we should use moments like January 6th to to just take stock of, of the way in which the stuff we're discussing or hearing in our own echo chambers is so dramatically different than than the conversations going on in so many communities around the country and and it is it's it's hard to see how we how we keep hanging t- together as mike said mike let's go back to the the point you made about essentially americans collectively being untethered from the ideals of the the, the the structures that were laid out at our founding, right? And the reasons that we we have the system that we have. Um, CBS News, YouGov released a poll this week that showed the approval rating of those who forced their way into the Capitol has actually improved over the last year. In January of 2021, uh, a year ago, 13% approved, 87% disapproved. Now that's 17% approved and 83% disapproved. Among Republicans, 47% said what happened at the Capitol was patriotism, while 56% said it was defending freedom, which was consistent with a poll from July. Two-thirds of respondents said that U.S. democracy is threatened, and that's in line with the July poll. Nearly two-thirds of respondents said that they expect violence over losing in future presidential elections. They also asked those who expected violence whether they would support it if their side after uh, uh, after a future election did it. And 3% of Democrats said they would. 82% said they would not. 15% said it depends. But 2% of Republicans said they'd favor violence. 57% said no. And 30% said it depends. They also found 56% of respondents strongly opposed dividing the U.S. into red and blue countries, with 21% somewhat opposing, 16% somewhat favoring, and 7% strongly favoring. So, Mike, we've talked about this idea of a battle between between the states before. And I, I want you to sort of expand on what you've been talking about and thinking about recently as it relates to Newsom and Abbott and DeSantis and the the sort of intentional provoking that they seem to be doing uh, among one another. And maybe there are more examples that you're that are top of mind for you. But I, I, I want you to help us think about this polling in the context of that discussion and 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 how it is you see these provocations uh, as dangerous and potentially escalating, and um, uh, uh, play that out for us a little bit. Why why are you concerned about it, and why are you why are you thinking about it that way? Well, let me cover the polling data first because I think it's instructive, and I think it's important to look at it in two different ways. The first are, and I think what kind of shocks the consciousness of Americans who kind of look at that and say, "How can that possibly be?" or or how how frightening is this threat? Is important because it's a very clear sign that we're not just a divided nation in terms of ideology or disagreement or, you know, some people believe this on a policy or that on a policy. We're talking about, you know, getting to very deep, foundational, emotionally driven 
um, intent to no longer be together, whether it's a call for violence, a call for separation, or I simply don't want to be with you anymore, right? It's kind of like the the, the signs of a, of a divorce coming on, right? It's like th- these are these are signs you need to pay for to pay attention to when you're looking at the health and the cohesiveness of a nation, right? We're, we're no longer agreeing with each other on basic values now. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to explode into into civil war. So so that's important to understand. But look, there's more than enough warning signs. Okay, it's not just smoke on the horizon. The flames are moving down, and it's it's this is problematic. We are not a healthy country at this moment in time. Doesn't mean we can't get better, but we're not healthy at the moment. And we need it. We need to start having that honest conversation about getting better. Now I'm going to talk about it from from a, a practitioner's perspective as a political consultant. If I believe that the threat is this growing and emanating, you know, right-wing authoritarian movement, which I do, I see a ton of opportunity to either limit, contain, or actually divide and weaken that growing sentiment to preserve and protect the country. And that's what I've been engaged in, you've been engaged in, Lucy's been engaged in, is how do we limit this so that it doesn't spill out into all-out open, you know, ripping apart the fabric of the country and, and testing our, our, the political bonds which, 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 you know, unite us and keep us together. And, and, and look, and I have said this, and it's kind of a contrarian point of view, but I think it's contrarian because I am a practitioner. It's the way I approach these things. Donald Trump's numbers – are actually softer now than they have been at any point in time since he secured the nomination. Now, they're still stronger as about, well, amongst Republicans. They're still stronger than any Republican at this point, probably in the 150-year history of the party for a president that just lost. But they're, they're, you know, there's polling out there that is showing him at 43% in a multi-candidate Republican primary. This is, this is somebody who is displaying definite signs of weakening in the base. You have to remember he got 92% of the Republican vote in in a year ago, a little over a year ago in the election. And that doesn't mean that he wouldn't consolidate most of that back, but there is a wide segment of the Republican electorate that is taking a good look and saying, "Mm, I don't know that this is the right place to be or the right place to go. And now the next three or four months is the time to get in there and exploit that weakness and have that conversation because that window will close in a late spring timeframe as we start to get down to the midterms and we all start to go back to our partisan foxholes. The time for an offensive counterinsurgency is now. It is now. And if we do not get in there and start exploiting that division um, and highlighting opposite voices in the Republican primary, to any extent, one, two, three percent, uh, we're going we're gonna to rue that day. We're going to rue this moment in time as a lost opportunity. And so that's why I think it's so important to look at, at these numbers and say, yeah, we are unhealthy as a country. Um, w- there is a strategic, broader 30,000-foot take we're going to have to do some deep examination on and, and find a really good therapist who, who specializes in dealing with countries uh, to, to kind of have a conversation with. But in the short term, what we have to really do is, I think, tactically engage what is happening at the moment. Because if we do not, we will continue to devolve into this state-by-state conflict, which is going to increase. Now, remember, history may not repeat, but it echoes. 
And if you watch this battle, it's not unlike what we were watching when the Republican Party came to be as we were battling over the questions of slavery, right, the Missouri Compromise. And, and, and that, that debate didn't happen in one weekend or in one year. There was a 10, 12-year windup about what we would do and who we would admit as states um, uh, under the question of slavery. And, and slavery was, you know, it was both an economic and cultural issue, which is precisely what we are grappling with, so much of what we were grappling with at this moment in time. And I'm not trying to make comparisons to slavery or necessarily the Civil War. What I'm trying to do is get people to understand that there has been a moment in our history where there was extraordinary conflict between the states and the cultural values of each state and the ability to compromise by allowing people to kind of do whatever they wanted to do did not end well. And it did not end well because a nation, a country, cannot be a house divided, as somebody once said very eloquently. There has to be a common set of cultural norms and values as a defining characteristic of nation. And if one of the features of our political system is constant conflict between some of the most popular states, California and New York, taking on Florida and Texas, that is not only not healthy, it does not end well. It, th- that, that conflict grows from political disagreement to strains on our institutions. And that's what you're seeing now by forcing the Supreme Court to intervene between this spat, between kind of two spouses and saying who's right and who's wrong and give us a definitive answer because we're going to keep fighting until in this zero-sum construct, one of us is going to be the winner. And and that is, it's replete with all sorts of dangers in terms of keeping us united as a people. And it's why I think there's going to be more more conflict and more division before we do get to a time when we are more cohesive as a country, which incidentally, I do believe we are going to get there. It's just going to be a long, difficult road. Lucy, you and I just had, Mike, you made me think of something else I want to come back to. But first, Lucy, um, you and I just had a really rich discussion about federalism, essentially. And that conversation will be out next week. And I'm wondering how you're thinking about what Mike just said in the context of federalism with these states fighting with each other. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that when we take a look, you were alluding to that, that you were talking about that CBS YouGov polling about how people are feeling about the country. And one of the top lines from that poll was that um, two thirds of the country, 66% of the country says that democracy is, is threatened, either very or somewhat threatened. And we assume, oh, good, good. Two thirds of people see that there's a problem. But when you actually look at the crosstabs of that, and we have this assumption, I think, I'm, I'm guessing that listeners have the same assumption I do when I first see that number, which is like, good. We all see that there was an insurrection and there are people trying to overturn the election and this is terrible. But when you look at the crosstabs, you see that actually the share of Republicans who say that democracy is somewhat or very threatened is much higher than of Democrats or independents. So conservatives, conservative Americans, they are just as activated, but they are activated on a thing that to liberals seems so foreign. And what they are activated around is culture. And it. I don't like it. I think that our country has a huge, huge, massive 
white nationalism problem. I think it's like the most dissatisfying upshot of my entire career. Like that, what it comes down is like, you know, the struggle over, over whiteness, right? It's so, it seems it's so debasing and boring and just awful to think about, but it's playing out all over the country and it is playing out in small ways in state legislatures, in these culture wars, it's playing out among candidates. It's why, I mean, you are seeing in the year 2022 candidates in states like Arizona and Michigan and Pennsylvania running campaigns where they're saying things like, we have to get back to uh, a, a country where a, a family can be a one-income family. Sort of implication is mom stays home, dad dad goes to work, right? All these, all these um, calls back to getting back to American values code for <laughs> a, a, a time that really, really was not great for a lot of people, a, a lot of people who deserve to have the same rights of, of economic opportunity and same pursuit of liberty and happiness as, as anyone else. But what I think we are often afraid to say is that all of the pieces of progress that make America uh, a country that feels in many ways like we are realizing the vision of our founders more and more, just over time becoming more equitable, becoming more open. And the idea that people, as Mike would say, can do what they want and can live the way they want, that has caused uh, many people to feel like things have gotten worse. And I hate the kind of tired idea. We just need to, we just need to listen to the people in diners who went to January, January 6th and were, you know, part of the, we just, we just haven't listened to them enough. We, we just, I hate that because not every sentiment deserves to be heard, but it is a sentiment that is driving voters. So, so when we think about what is the approach for listening, it's a balance between, um, I want to hear you because I want to inform my strategy, not I want to hear you because I'm I'm going to give credence to what you're saying. But 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 the way that it plays out is and I as I talked about in our conversation that will come out uh soon, you know, the way it plays out is in insane legislation in state houses. You can go and look at there are thousands of bills that are all dropping this month, tens of thousands of bills, probably hundreds of thousands of bills frankly. Tis in the state season. houses across the country, tis the season, <laughs> and there will be more, and there are going to be these committee hearings, and you just you see a a country really really divided. <laughs> yeah, Mike, I wonder. Uh, Lucy just made me think of this. Your point that we're untethered from the principles of our founding, and Lucy's point about our essentially struggle to decide what American values are. Do you think we're going through a period where we're essentially, we're, 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 we're look, we don't realize it collectively, but we're actually looking for the roots of what it means to be America. What are American values in the first place? And we're actually going to, hopefully we weather this storm and we arrive at a place where we rediscover the same principles upon which we were founded. And we try to realize them in a more equitable way. That's such a great question. The answer is yes, of course. But let me qualify that a little bit. That is the constant struggle of America. 
That, that is what we were always. I mean, there are two very significant moments, I think, in this history that really define that question. And the question that you're really asking, I think, is what is the true American political tradition? Like, who are we as a people? And it's this balance, this constant struggle between, quote unquote, freedom and, quote unquote, equality. Like, what is that What is that balance? And America, the mythology of America, and that doesn't mean that it's false, it just means this is what we center our identity on, is this, we are this free people, right? We were the first people unshackled by by the colonists. We were the people that first broke out and demanded our freedom and, and, and came up with this radical idea that we could run our own society, that people could vote and actually determine their own direction. And we did it. Uh, after after kind of a failed attempt right after the American Revolutionary War, we established this constitution, right, 12, 13 years after after the war. And, and really what the constitution is, is it's simply a framework. It, it doesn't provide – there are founding documents, Jeffersonian principles that say this is the, per, the, the point of America. The point of the declaration is to give inalienable rights – to which and this is very important in understanding Jeffersonian principles. They're inalienable to us: life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Right? Based, they are endowed with by the Creator, and that's so important to understand because that means they're universal. They're not just for Americans. It just means that they're they're for human beings. Like that is the principle, and that is what is so often forgotten conveniently in in the Republican Party and in the American right today. As as nationalism has infused the American right, it's this. This is the American way. The the founding the literally in our Declaration, literally what we were saying was. These are inalienable rights, which they cannot be taken from any government because you are a human being. That's what Americanism is. And so when it's infused and confused by the, the racism of the time specifically in those same documents that said, you know, it's only men could vote, for example, or white men, of course, and, and, and slaves were, were chattel and they could only be counted at a certain level, there was this inherent conflict. And, and that, that conflict is largely unresolved but growing for about 100, 100 years until we have a great civil war where Lincoln then d- declares that equality is, is a goal. All men are created equal. And, and, and there's a lot of discussion between which of those represent the true American political tradition is are we looking to be a truly free people or a truly equal people? And the answer is really both. And we will struggle with that mightily as long as this republic exists. And that's healthy. That, that, that is what will allow us to navigate through the changes that society brings us. What, is, what we are at, unfortunately, is at a moment in time where compromise on these two ideals is not a virtue. It is a vice. And, and the only time that that has really reached this kind of peak in our history brought us to a great war. And, and, and that is what I think so many of us are trying to avoid while there is clearly a radicalized element in our society that is pushing for it. And that's, that's the danger. That, that's the risk is how do we as a country try to prevent you know, this, this inter you know, warfare on a cultural level, hopefully it doesn't spill into to violence on the streets. Although I think violence will be a characteristic of our country over the next couple of decades politically. Um, 
while also trying to solve these massive policy problems like climate change and economic transformation and demographic you know transformation these are these are unprecedented things in human history let alone american history while we're grappling with this extraordinary difficulty uh, in conflict between these two ideas of what america is so and we're going to do it and we're gonna <laughs> we and we're gonna do it. it, and 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 I want to take a moment to to just consider what the best case scenario might be as we do that, because we are uh, pretty pessimistic. Well, I am pretty pessimistic that the next. I mean, we've talked about this. Political violence is going to be a norm for the next ten to twenty years. Um, January sixth mm-hmm. was the beginning. I think. I think we all generally see that. Um. Can, can, I, can back, I take a moment to tell you why I'm optimistic? Please. Yeah, please, please. Now, this is the most yeah, again, optimistic I've actually ever heard, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's maybe it's just my contrarian nature is when everyone thinks it's going well, I'm like, no, it's not. When everything's going bad, it's like, no, it's not. Um, look, one of the things, and I've been doing doing a, a lot of reading on this, especially in the era of um, between 18. Uh, really 1890 uh, uh, through through 1915, which was probably the most tumultuous, challenging times outside of the Civil War on democracy, where we were, where we were experiencing very, very similar dynamics. And it was an era characterized by violence, by some of the highest turnout rates, uh, voting percentage in our in our history. and and a lot of reforms came out of that that actually uh, made it work. So, so I'm I'm somewhat optimistic because we we have been through worse before in, in similar environments. But, but, but here's what I'm really optimistic about: we are coming out of a post Cold War era where the United States was this hegemonic power that that really had kind of a blank canvas on what the rest of the world was going to look like. And I graduated from college, at, uh, you know, I graduated from high school in 1989, like literally while the wall came down. And so there's a 20-year period where we, we kind of go into the 90s, which were kind of this decade about nothing, really. We just kind of have these silly discussions about there was no, there was no threat to us uh, in, in any meaningful way. There were creeping signs, as there always will be in human history. But really what has happened through our adult lifetimes is there has not been a true test of the American character in the way that we experienced, for example, in World War I, where we had to fight literally for democracy. I believe that democracy, and more importantly, freedom, cannot exist without a struggle for it. The fight for freedom is a defining characteristic of a people that value it. And only through that value can it be transferred to the next generation. So this fight that we're in is a necessary fight. And when we win, and we will, it will look different when it comes out because it, you know history echoes, it doesn't repeat. We will be a people more imbued with the value of what we have been bequeathed. And, and that makes us a stronger people. I do believe that America has existed for a whole host of reasons, um, geographic, military, economic, for, for 250 years, but most importantly, because I think 
our documents and our ideals best reflect the sentiment of what human nature is and what it can aspire to be. As flawed as our document and our documents and our history and our foundings were, we are pushing in that direction. And it's why I think we will succeed. But why I think we will thrive is because we will be better for the struggle. We will be leaving to our children and the next generation a lesson on what it means to fight. And every generation of Americans and freedom-loving people should be tested to some extent. And we have not. Most living Americans have not. And it's a requirement to preserve and protect a system as, as, as beautiful as the one that we've been given. So I, I think we just need to be worthy of the moment and, and not, be afra- not be afraid of it but recognize that virtually every one of the 15 American generations since our founding has faced this struggle. And the the fear is okay, but it's okay only insofar as it spurs action, as it is a call to be the people that America's mythology has always presented. We need to be the people that we aspire to be. And if we do, we will succeed. We will. I think a lot of listeners right now are thinking, when do I get to vote for Mike Madrid? No, never. <laughs> Hopefully never. If I do, I'm, requ- I'm, I'm asking the both of you guys to intervene. <laughs> Lucy? <laughs> I think that that's a, that's a beautiful vision for the country. But I think that what stops us from getting there, or what would stop us from achieving that vision is failure and refusal to confront our original sin and our ongoing sins. And I think that we have a really, as you say, Mike, many generations of Americans have been tested in ways that this generation of Americans have not. But part of what comes along with that is an incredible revulsion to ever being uncomfortable. So people are afraid to confront their next door neighbors about the indecency of a let's go Brandon sign. And instead of, instead of encouraging families to really hash out the question of, of whether our democracy is at risk and in dire straits, Instead, you see cutesy articles about how to get along with your, you know, crazy, racist, uh, bigoted uncle at Thanksgiving and Christmas. And for as long as we do that, and those are those are micro examples, but it's happening on a macro example in Congress right now. You have Democrats and uh, two Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, doing great work on the January 6th committee. But there is no corresponding action or no corresponding sort of moment of saying, and therefore we must take these actions. We must pass these reforms. This is worthy of breaking a filibuster. This is worthy of saying to your next door neighbor, uh, no, it is not okay. It is not a valid opinion to believe that the election was stolen. Or no, it's it's not okay to talk about um black and brown Americans that way. Or yes, it is okay for our children to be a little bit uncomfortable, our white children to be uncomfortable in school when they experience an expanded curriculum that includes the Tulsa massacre that we never learned about in school. Those things are okay. And we have to face these things head on. And my biggest fear for the country is that there is so much desire 
I think, frankly, as much on the left as there is on the right, to go back to things being nice and just a, a real disdain for having a reckoning that we could kind of just continue to fiddle while Rome burns because no one wants to get in the ring. Reckoning is the right word. And I think the question on my mind and probably on a lot of listeners' minds is, can we have that reckoning politically or is it going to take something uh, worse? And I want to, I want to bring this rich discussion now down to the immediate electoral considerations. And Mike, you mentioned earlier that, and we've talked about this, uh, of course, recently, Trump's numbers softening with the Republican Party. That doesn't mean that Trumpism is softening. It means that he is softening and there are new standard bearers, right? It doesn't mean the base isn't hardening in the direction where he pointed them, right? I want to know how each of you think about at least the political antidote to where we are right now. What is the best case scenario? Because my working hypothesis thus far since the Lincoln Project has been Democrats need to earn and win more power. And they do that by expanding the tent because we need to rebuke the strain of authoritarianism that has infected the Republican Party. But Mike, it seems like your vision may call for, or maybe you are hopeful that the Republican Party can be transformed into something that is more responsible or that those voices can be shut out, that we can contain uh, the virus in some way and that we can have a, we can, we, we can avoid extreme violent conflicts, war between the states by elevating Republican candidates who are not of that ilk, right? Does that to you mean more Glenn Youngkins and Republican victories that, uh, that perhaps strengthen the, the, or, or, or moderate the Republican party or does that mean to you more democratic victories in order to contain um, what is what what seems to be a Republican Party heading in in a dangerous direction? Well, look, I, I'm not. I don't for a moment believe that the Republican Party can can ever go back to what it was. I mean, it's forever transformed. It's forever changed. And I don't think that the the you know. I'm also not in the business of trying to save it. Like I've said before, I'm more in the I'm more in the business of fumigating the Republican Party <laughs> and pointing out pointing out these elements. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to save it. I'm not trying to save the Republican Party. Uh, I, I am trying to you know save the country, and uh, like so many of us are, I, and I'm interested in pointing out some of these you know really really bad things that have emanated from the American right and continue to to kind of grow. But what I will say is this, you know. Most examples of cults of personality tend to end when that person leaves the scene, either you know by political inviability or for whatever other reason. There is a fever on the American right that is is I think it's starting to to break or show some weakness. Uh, it's a Trump fever. Uh, I don't believe that a Ron DeSantis or a Ted Cruz or a Josh Hawley will be able to marshal the same sort of cult following, this cult of personality that Donald Trump has. So to me, that's a tactical victory. If you take Donald Trump off the chessboard, you don't eliminate Trumpism, you don't eliminate the underlying elements of what created it, but you take away the most immediate existential threat and it allows for a broader battlefield uh, politically to, to, to be engaged. That's what I'm interested in. The most immediate existential threat is Donald Trump. 
And so I believe that his numbers are showing an opening for, if not, you know, that removal uh, for a serious weakening. And part of that weakening requires separate lanes of conversation. We have to remember one of the most defining parts of the Republican Party in the last five years, and all three of this, all three of us are intimately aware of this, is you, there cannot be dissent. Dissent is not allowed. You are ostracized. You are run out of the party. You are attacked viciously, personally, professionally, in every possible way because they have to. That's a, that, that's a sign of a gang or a mob. That's not a political party. In most of our adult lives, there's always been tensions. Are you pro-life? Are you pro-choice? Is this good tax policy? What should we be doing in the foreign policy arena? There has been none of that during the Trump era. None of that. All that matters is what Donald Trump believes and whether or not you are loyal to him or not. That's not a political party. I do believe that if, if Trump were to leave the scene, let's say he goes to prison hypothetically, that there will be Larry Hogan's. There will be Ron DeSantis. There will be Ted Cruz. There will be Josh Hawley's. And I'm not suggesting any of them will be a victor. But what I am saying is they will be. there will be more differences of opinion be, be, just, just by nature of politics abhorring a vacuum. And Trump will leave an extraordinarily large vacuum. I'm not going to predict on what the Republican Party will be. I'm not even going to postulate on what it should be other than to say it should not be a mob it should not be a gang. It should not be a cult. And the only way to get past that is to get rid of the figurehead politically. And so when that happens, I do believe that the elements of populism, nationalism, isolationism, you know, these, these, uh, these, these the four horsemen of the apocalypse as Condoleezza Rice calls them. Yeah. So th 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 those, will, those are going to be there. They are strong. They have always been in our body politic. They're stronger now than they have been since the 30s. But what is unique, um, you know, possibly with the exception of, 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 of Andrew Jackson, but we'll set that aside for a little bit, is we've always been able to avoid this, this situation that we're currently in. And I do not believe that there is another person on the political scene that could fill the void of, of, of the decline of Donald Trump and coalesce this amount of Americans in this way. I don't. And I think that allows the mob, the fever to break and dissension within a political party, which is healthy. That's normal. That's the way it's supposed to work. Lucy, same question to you. I don't think that Donald Trump has to be alive and well to continue his reign over the Republican Party. I think that he has shown himself to be so strong and effective at mobilizing Republicans that he could be held up for a long time. I think that people like Glenn Youngkin are the exception and not the rule. Um, I think that there's a reason that Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, who is like the most wonderful Republican that could be by all measures of what that person could be is keeping his head down and focusing on Maryland and not making a big play for the national stage. Ditto Charlie Baker, ditto Phil Scott. It's, there's a reason that we're not seeing a you know return of, of figures like Justin Amash or Jeff Flake or even someone like Will Hurd, all these Republicans who maybe could be the people who could save us. There's a reason that Ben Sass has not decided that this is his moment to come to the fore and be the alternative to 
Trumpism. So I, I think there is just a real concern that whether Trump is, you know, six feet under or in a jail cell, that his power in the way that other figures, like figures like Mao Zedong or, you know, figures in, in history in in other countries that have have found themselves in sort of authoritarian scenarios continue to have an influence long long after they're gone. And I, I think that you can see that, you know, to, to go back a little bit to what I was saying about the need for a reckoning, you can see at so many turns the decision by well-intentioned public servants or political figures to, to, to in, instead of raising the temperature, to just like keep it at a low burn. So for example, in the prosecutions of January 6th insurrectionists, prosecutors have really declined in sentencing. We now have all these people who've been sentenced. They have declined to push domestic terrorism as as a a kind of a sentence enhancement. It would cause people to have much much longer sentences. That is because they think that I I assume. I assume they are making a calculus that that would raise the temperature in a way that would just sort of uh, ignite just so much anger and fury among Trump, Trump supporters, and it would create so much more polarization. And that I don't even disagree with that. That may be true, but we are so far down this road, and there has been no moment in the past five years, six years, seven years, where you can point to a to a moment where a, a moderate or a Democrat or even a moderate conservative, we don't have those anymore. But when we did, where they were like, let's, oh, we're just, we're, look, we're going to do something moderate and temperate here so that you also do that, right? It doesn't work. They don't, they don't play that way, right? So yes, it is, it could get really bad. And I see that if we say, push domestic terrorism as a way to enhance sentencing for these insurrectionists, that it could cause mobs of MAGA people in the streets and more violence. And I see that, but I also don't see a, a way to get through this storm without enduring some of that. And, and so I think to me, that's really the, the, the central question. Are we prepared to go to battle against these proto-fascist authoritarian lovers that are not only Republican leaders, but also their supporters, <laughs> their, I mean, rank and file Republican voters in many cases, or are we not? And, and th that's what I mean when I, when I'm thinking about the reckoning and, and how we meet the moment a year later. The domestic terrorism charge, just to um, add to that, uh, I, I think they're, I think prosecutors are using it as leverage at this point. Um, we read, read some really interesting coverage about this uh, in the last few days, and they seem to be employing it as a strategy to get guilty pleas. And uh, as they work their way up the chain of people who have knowledge in advance of what would qualify as conspiracy or sedition. And um, and by the way, we should note hats off to our to our to our friend Scott McFarlane, who's been covering these investigations, who has just been tapped by CBS News to be their chief congressional correspondent. And well, well deserved. Bravo, Scott. Um, and if you want to follow along in more real time, uh, these investigations, um, uh, and particularly the prosecutions that the DOJ is doing, um, certainly follow Scott McFarlane. And there are a couple of episodes on the Politicology feed um, that you should listen to. Before we move on to the next uh, segment, Mike and Lucy, I just want to 
say thank you. And I'm, I am, uh, honored. It is a privilege to get to digest this stuff with you both in a really thoughtful, rich way. So thank you for, for bringing this. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. Both of you. We spent more time on that segment than I was planning to, but it's okay. This is going to be a long roundup. Uh, hopefully people won't mind. Um, but let's talk about the economy. Um, looking forward to this year. Oh my God, it's 2022 now. A record number of Americans uh, quit their jobs in November as job openings remained close to their all-time highs. Four and a half million workers quit in November, up from 4.2 million in October and uh, above the prior record of 4.4 million reached in September. That means that 3% of workers voluntarily left their jobs. There were 10.6 million job openings down from the 11 million posted in October and below July's all-time high. There's 6.9 million unemployed Americans in November, which means there's about 1.5 available jobs for every unemployed person, which is the most on record. Um, Much of the movement has happened in the service sector in which people are quitting for new jobs, often with higher pay. There's been a lot of talk about wage growth this year. Wages are rising uh, at their fastest pace in years. But according to a New York Times uh, Momentive, formerly SurveyMonkey survey, only 17% of workers say their wage increase has kept up with inflation. Um, Nearly 9 in 10 respondents said they were at least somewhat concerned about inflation. 6 in 10 are very concerned. Uh, according to the New York Times, government data shows that wage gains are outpacing inflation in some parts of the economy, particularly the service sector, but in aggregate, prices have risen faster than wages. The Consumer Price Index, uh, which I have gone on rants about on previous uh, episodes as being a fraud perpetrated by the federal government, rose 6.8% in November, a a nearly four-decade high versus a 4.8% rise in average hourly earnings. Um, the surges in food, energy, and shelter have accounted for much of the gains in the CPI. Energy prices, energy prices, you guys get this, have risen 33.3% since November of 2020, including a three and a half jump in November. Um, gas prices have dropped 14% since its peak in November. Food prices are up 6.1% over the year. Shelter costs are up 3.8% on the year, uh, despite the concern most Americans said inflation had not yet had a major effect on their finances. That's according to the Times. But low-income households were more likely to report having a harder time with rising prices. Only 11% said they planned to ask for a raise if inflation continued, which could stave off a wage price spiral where rising prices lead to workers demanding raises, which leads employers to raise prices to pay for them. Unemployment claims are at their lowest pace since 1969, and GDP is unexpected to show some strong gains from the end of 2021. So inflation remains the biggest problem for the economic recovery coming coming out of the pandemic, and everybody is concerned about it. Um, It looks like the majority opinion among economists is that we should expect inflation to remain a problem uh, through the midterms. Um, I've said before that inflation is going to be a driver during the midterms. If you are running a congressional or a Senate campaign for an incumbent, what kind of messaging would you be testing on how to respond to inflation, Mike? Well, look, I mean, the best way to do it, I think, is a brass tax look at kind of the, the core drivers of what people are saying, the price at the pump every day, housing costs and food costs and kind of uh, 
trying to drive that home, drive home that message. But but let me say this: what, what really concerns people about the economic conditions is the overall anxiety and loss of security about what they see happening to them. And all of the metrics that you've pointed out, I think, have been really good gauges since the end of the Second World War, as we kind of refitted and recalibrated our economy, and economists took a look at it. I'm not too sure that they really measure what is happening in an economy that is fully digitized now. What we do mm-hmm. know is that there's a separation between the classes, right? The, the, the wealthy, uh, uh, you know, people in high high tech economy, highly skilled jobs don't have anywhere near the same economic anxiety as those that do not. And there's a dramatic separation between those two. There are people who are just choosing in married households, for example, to to to, to work remotely or to drop out because we're realizing, hey, maybe I don't we don't need the second income and I'd rather stay home. That's very different than quote unquote essential workers who are worried about, you know, getting getting the virus and and trying to find another um, you know, entry level service sector job. We, we really ought to be looking at as kind of these two different strata of what is happening because what is driving economic concerns are dramatically different than these what I believe these traditional barometers have been. But again, to answer your question specifically on what that means as a, from a practitioner standpoint is you, you, you have to tap into what we call the mood of the electorate, which is people do not feel confident about where we are heading even though all the traditional indicators look pretty darn good. You hear some of the messaging coming out of the White House saying, you know, it's the best economic recovery in, in history for a president's first year. And, and that's true by those metrics and those standards. I'm not trying to denigrate that or undermine that. But what I am trying to say is that's not necessarily a reflection of how people feel about where we are headed. And inflation is a particularly pernicious thief because it's it's stealing your purchasing power and it undermines your confidence in the economy. And consumer confidence is something that we look at very closely when we're trying to gauge what we call, again, the mood of the electorate. Do people feel like the country, the state, their local community is heading in the right direction or is it heading in the wrong track? And when their dollar is becoming weaker and their purchasing power is is becoming weaker, they have less and less confidence in in in, in all of that sentiment, in, in the government, in, in the government's ability to handle these problems and I think that that's the way I would be communicating to this is speaking to, again, people hate to hear this, but that general economic anxiety, that last lack of confidence that is coming about as the economy changes dramatically, as it transforms in ways that most economists aren't prepared to gauge or track or record. And it's caused a lot of consternation out there. And that's a very dangerous place to be for incumbents. Lucy, I've said this uh, a couple of times, but it doesn't seem to be that, you know, this isn't the approach Democrats seem to be taking, which is you have to start with, I feel your pain and here's what we're going to do about it, right? You have to start there. To Mike's point, you have to appeal to the mood of the electorate. Um, But we, we also know inflation, especially in our current economic environment, hurts the people at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder the most, right? And I wonder if there's any way for Democrats in your mind to minimize the political damage of inflation. How did they get there? Yeah, I think it's it's a challenge. I mean, one of the things that is really, and obviously I'm not a labor economist, but one of the things that is quite stark when you look at the, the great resignation and the number of people who are looking for jobs versus 
versus how many jobs are available is that there are actually about one and a half jobs available in the economy for every person who's searching, which tells us that, in fact, these are jobs that people really don't want. There's a problem of a mismatch between our labor force and the jobs available. And that is because of a lot of the the things that Mike alluded to, right? A huge, a growing gap, a growing wealth gap, a, a growing gap in, in terms of what it's like to be at the top versus what it's not like. And, and the fact that respectable blue collar jobs, that that vision of a, a family that is a one income household with a blue collar job, that doesn't exist anymore. And so there is not a way to bring those jobs back. We've been through this. We've been through this for several election cycles. And Republicans have gained a monopoly on I feel your pain because they lie to voters and tell them that, you know, their coal mine jobs are coming back, right? And that immigration, we're just going to build a wall and then all of those Mexicans coming in for your jobs will be gone and everything is going to be hunky-dory when that's all bogus. What I would do, and this is perhaps a little out of left field, and everyone knows I'm not a populist, but this appeals to populists. The also, it appeals to populism. I, If I were a Democrat running this year in this climate, I would run on, uh, a, on the UBI. I would run on universal basic, basic income, and I would push a universal basic income, truly universal for every American. Because right now, when people are thinking about problem, you know, the, the pain that they're feeling because of inflation and because of the, the disparity between wage growth and inflation, they are thinking, okay, as you, as you noted, most Americans are saying it hasn't impacted them hugely yet, but they're going to start to feel it. They're going to start to feel like, huh, the, gosh, my kid's sports equipment costs a lot more, right? Or gosh, you know, the price of iceberg lettuce is crazy. This used to be the cheap lettuce we bought, whatever it is. Something like the UBI and the promise of UBI, which is also which is good politics, and there are plenty of groups that are on the right that have supported UBIs, like the American Enterprise Institute, for instance, has been in favor of a budget-neutral UBI. I think that this moment in time where what we're really grappling with is not just inflation, but this mismatch between our labor force and their ability, the, the, the jobs available to them, and and what economic opportunity looks like for so many Americans, I think that this is the perfect moment to think about how to reimagine a modern economy in the in the tech era, in the in the Web three era, Ron, in, in the this crypto moment era. in time, <laughs> in the crypto era, and and I think that we've seen steadily that support for the UBI has grown over the years. It's a very appealing concept to people. It's a concept that also appeals to moderates and even some fiscal conservatives because there are ways to do it in a way that is budget neutral. It, it eliminates the, um, it, it really solves the issue in a lot of ways of, of programs like unemployment or you know extended, extended unemployment, which has become such a boogeyman. Anyway, it may seem out of left field, mm. but but I would be encouraging Democrats to get serious about UBI in 2022. I think it would be hugely popular and, and really encourage Democrats to run on the idea of the UBI. It's a positive vision for a modern economy and post-pandemic economy. That's what I would tell them to do. <laughs> I think we need to do an episode on the conservative case for universal basic income because this sounds a hell of a lot like, uh, you know, 
um, Romney care becoming Obamacare, which was ultimately, which was, <laughs> didn't it originate at the Heritage Foundation, right? <laughs> yes, it did. You're right. You're right. Yeah. You've got to find whoever wrote that, whoever is, you know, there are some of the people who've been in favor of the AEI sponsored UBI are people that would really surprise you, like Charles Murray, um, for folks who know that. Charles Murray has come out in favor of a UBI at times. It's, it's really strange bedfellows, but I think it's, an idea worth revisiting in, in 2022. <laughs> that is definitely Andrew Yang. If you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> can, can I jump in on that a little bit? Yeah, please do. I, I think that's especially with the Andrew Yang comment. I remember again teaching a USC course saying, "Like, I'm not saying this candidacy is going anywhere, but to Lucy's point, I think she's exactly right. The, the framing of what he called the freedom dividend." Right, where we in a digital economy, all of us are are a commodity. We are the ones that by being on our phones and providing data are literally the commodity that is being mined and monetized. So you should realize some some dividend from that, which can be characterized as as, as UBI. I, I think it's a really fascinating concept. And I think politically, Lucy could not be more correct. I think it it's 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 politically a message whose time has come from a policy perspective. Um, I, I I don't know. A lot of us don't know a whole lot about it or what it actually yeah, means. How it, it does sound work, right? Or how it would work? I mean, it, it does sound a little bit like if you think inflation is bad now, let's inflate the the shit out of the economy by just you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, what what does that no, do? We what need does sound that money. To, That's the problem. We need sound money. Yeah, well, what, we does don't have sound money right what does that do to the workforce, yeah. especially in industries, you know, the restaurant service industry that is struggling right now to find to kind of find some workers? And I, I, I think we'll shake that out. But I, I do think that politically, a universal basic income, however that looks, is going to be a central feature of our political system in the digital era. It just it has to be because not just the widening yawning gap of between the haves and have nots, but literally because we are commodities. We are the ones that are fueling data. And as we've talked about before on this show, if you take the market capitalization of the top companies, data companies in the world, and compare it to the market capitalizations of the oil companies in the world, the data companies are far bigger, meaning data which we give away freely, yeah. <laughs> right? The new is, oil. is a it more valuable commodity than oil. Mm-hmm. It is a more valuable, we are, our data, what's in our brains is a more expensive, valuable commodity yeah. than oil. It is making the yeah. world economy run and it's more important than petroleum. So why yes. shouldn't there be some sort of a dividend? It's a good question. Yeah. And, and not just what's and in our brains, but where where we move, how we move, where like where where we go, what we like, all of that's being tracked in mind. And Lucy knows this better than most of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but none of this works without sand money. And in a future series on politicology, which I'm still working on, I'm going to explain what I mean by that. But the dollar is not on unsa- is the dollar is just simply not sound money anymore. And that is um, that is a major problem we are staring down the barrel of right now. Okay. Now (laughs) that we are, this this is a very unconventional roundup. uh, But now that we're up to speed on a couple of the biggest stories this week, uh, let's look at what you're watching. Lucy, what do you have for us under the radar? 
Sure. Well, I feel like I've accidentally just alluded to some of this, but uh, I have been thinking a lot about Web3 and the idea of, I, th- I think there's a there's a misperception that um, the, the, mo- the era of Web3 is just like we've we tech is going to democratize everything, which in some ways I think it very well could. But when we talk about the the ability of tech to democratize, we often don't talk about whether or not we are at the same time democratizing tech. And there was a a poll that that I read about in a in a piece um, that was done by the VC firm Backstage Capital which is a, a, a VC firm that really focuses on backing ventures of underrepresented founders. And they found that, um, they, they estimated that only about 1% of venture capital is going to LGBTQ founders. But, but and that worse, in a follow-up survey by a related entity, they surveyed LGBTQ founders and a third of them said that they went to great lengths to hide um, that part of their identity while raising money in order to successfully raise. And I've been thinking about this in the backdrop this week of a bunch of tweets by Joe Lonsdale, who is a, a Palantir co-founder and, and kind of in the in the over of, of Peter Thiel. Uh, really going on a rant this week that attracted a lot of attention, where he basically said that disparity in in funds v- venture funds going to um, black founders can really, really mostly be that that we've gotten so woke that we're just not focusing enough on on how they're all basically. I'm paraphrasing, but like they're all uneducated and from broken homes, and and these are he's a powerful person that is saying this stuff controls a huge amount of capital has powerful friends and and there's been a little bit of an uprising of of much smaller funds saying this is not a not an okay thing to think or say but but there's still this this reality that that he's very powerful and people are afraid to to cross he's saying the quiet part out loud but people are really afraid to to cross people like Joe Lonsdale and so i think that that juxtaposition of of someone saying that out loud versus what we're now seeing from the data about not only women, black and brown founders, but also LGBTQ founders. Really, I think it's just a, a moment as we think about this year and and the idea that we are now in this tech economy to think, are we are we in, in, in the promise of these new institutions? Are we building new institutions in the way that we claim to to live now? Or are we just perpetuating these existing societal problems projected onto our our new our our new institutions, and so I know you're very interested in in crypto and Web three, and and I just think thinking about the culture around this innovation um, is super important as we find ourselves in a a new world where we eat, breathe, sleep um, <laughs> technology and data and Web three. <laughs> What a great insight. Now I want to go find whatever the LGBTQ coin is because there's got to be a good point. (laughs) Good point. Wow. Um, I can't, I can't wait until we actually cover this in detail on the show. Uh, it's coming. I promise. Uh, Lucy's mom. (laughs) My mom's waiting. Yes. (laughs) Um, Mike, what do you have for us? 
You know, back in May uh, on this show, we discussed a development that occurred, which we're all following daily now, but I want to kind of get back to it because it really is important, especially to understand the tactical ways the January 6th committee is going to be uh, unfolding um, and, and releasing its data. And that is, we were talking about how the removal of Liz Cheney from leadership in the Republican Party was not the end of Liz Cheney. It was the beginning of Liz Cheney's fight. And I think that what she is doing is an absolute masterclass in how to handle this situation with the January 6th committee politically. And so while it's not a, a, a big story, it's a it's a really keen uh, way to learn how the 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 art form of politics is practiced and to watch what she is doing is really remarkable. This refrigerator hum that we've talked a little bit about, this steady release of information that is just slowly by a thousand cuts dominating the news cycle every day is coming from a very methodical, disciplined leaking of information to various news sources to dominate the discourse over a prolonged period of time. And that is essentially creating a war of attrition with her opposition, which is uh, making them all nervous and lawyer up and worry about the circle closing and will create an environment where they will begin to turn on each other by not wanting to be the last person who's a loyalist to Trump. And I think that we are starting to see some of the actual practical effects of that, like Donald Trump canceling his January 6th press conference and moving it to the 15th in Arizona um, because of the phone calls that he's getting, whether they're from Laura Ingram or Sean Hannity or from his lawyers or from everybody else saying, look, this is just bad politics. There are so many people that are potentially in so much deep trouble that the more the circle is widened and the more that this is dominating the national discourse, yes, it's not as a front uh, you know, page as inflation or the price of gas to the average voter. But what it's doing is it's setting the, the conditions. They're conditioning the environment for the extremist arguments that will clearly dominate the midterm elections. And I do think it is more than a, a mildly ironic that it is a Republican that is essentially conditioning the environment and limiting the potential damage that will be done to Democrats in the midterms because of the importance that it means for the country. And to watch this being done as, as a professional is just, um, it's, 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 it's exciting. I hate to Sounds use that fine. term because it is. Yeah. It's inspiring. And just to watch somebody that is so good at her craft taking on the entire establishment of her own party for the benefit of the country even though she's doing it knowing that she will potentially, you know, give power to people that she disagrees with politically for the benefit of the country. I mean, I guess all three of us could, could say the yeah. same thing because we've kind of yeah. been in those shoes. To watch it play out legislatively is it's um it's it's just so impressive. And I I I you know I think she's as good as Mitch McConnell. Yeah, it, precisely. And she's not, you know, doing it for the kudos or accolades right now because the the easy just like all of us again, the easy way to go make money, fame and fortune is to jump onto the gravy train and try to tap into that and she could have done the same thing by being a Trump stooge. But she she's using all of the political capital that the Cheney name 
brings, not just hers, but her family's, to execute and spend it at this moment in the most efficacious way. And it just it, it looks like the end of a Godfather scene when she's just taking care of the family business and, and everything is just kind of slowly, you know, um, coming into, into place, whether it's, you know, Hannity panicking and freaking out or him, you know, Meadows, you know, dumping more evidence than he should. And, and Pete Navarro, you know, basically hanging himself voluntarily and, and <laughs> everybody at the Willard hotel starting to kind of, you know, panic in a circle. Um, and again, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself on what this actually means, but I am absolutely convinced that what she is doing is laying out the legal case uh, for the Department of Justice in a high-profile public way so that when the likelihood of a turnover in the control of Congress and the elimination of the January 6th committee happens, it won't matter. It won't matter. It's She's, she's taking all of the political arguments that were used unsuccessfully in two impeachment hearings and providing a criminal case that can be used by DOJ to move on all of these people. And I just think it's brilliant. It is brilliant. Well said. <sighs> what a roundup. Before we go to the after party, AKA Politicology Plus, uh, where can everybody find you on the internet, Mike? Find me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>